I'll just pray and we'll jump straight in. Father, I thank you for this awesome and eye-opening passage today, Revelation chapter 5, where we see you, the Lion of Judah, as a lamb who has been slain. And Father, we just thank you for the gift of your Son, providing us with a pardon, providing us with a free pass so that we don't have to suffer and pay the penalty for the sins that we have committed. Instead, you paid it for us. So it help us as we study this today to have our hearts full of gratitude and to realize that this is the center of everything. Lord, what you did on the cross is everything and it should be everything to us. So we just pray you really open our hearts and our minds to see your love displayed for all to see on the cross. In Jesus' name, amen. So I'm just going to basically jump in before I do. It's important that we understand that anything that God allows to happen on earth has to get the go-ahead from heaven first. So nothing just happens. Okay, God is in control. So let's see what happens. So we're going to read together in Revelation chapter 5. We're going to read the whole chapter. The first part of the chapter is basically John seeing Jesus before the throne and Jesus taking the scroll. And the second part of the chapter is heaven exploding in worship as they go, wow, this is just so amazing what God has done and the sacrifice that Jesus has made. So let's jump in. Revelation chapter 5. And I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll written inside and on the back, sealed with seven seals. Then I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals? And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look at it. So I wept much, because no one was found worthy to open and read the scroll, or to look at it. But one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. And I looked, and behold, in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures, and in the midst of the elders, stood a lamb as though it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he came back and took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. So just a bit of background. The one who's sitting on the throne is the Father. The Lamb, of course, is Jesus. Now when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each having a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you are slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood. Out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation, 
and have made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on the earth. Then I looked, and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was ten thousand times ten thousand and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honour and glory and blessing and every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and such are in the sea and all that are in them I heard saying, Blessing and honour and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb for ever and ever. Then the four living creatures said, Amen. And the twenty-four elders fell down and worshipped him who lives forever and ever. So we're going to see this when we get to heaven. This is something we're going to experience. John is experiencing this. And basically it's a picture of what we're going to see as well. So the twenty-four elders, as we talked about last week, 24 is a number of courses or groups of priests. So there's 24 groups of priests. So 24 represents priesthood. And based on other evidence that we looked at last week, the 24 elders represent the church. And the song they sung that we just read there, it says, And have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe, tongue, and people, and nation and have made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on the earth. That can only apply to the church. So here we have the church in front of the throne. So last week, the focus was on the throne of God, chapter 4. This week, the focus shifts to something that the Father is holding in his hand, if you can call it that. The Father has a scroll, and we're going to find out what that scroll is. It's all about the scroll in this chapter. And who was worthy? So, if this scroll was similar to other scrolls in John's day, it would be made of 8 by 10 inch sheets of papyrus, which were connected horizontally and wound around a wooden handle. That's what a scroll looked like. Short epistles or letters the size of Jude, Philemon, etc., would all be written on a single piece of papyrus. So, just a single piece of like, paper today but papyrus back then. The book of Revelation, on the other hand, would require a scroll 15 feet long. And so you'd have to slowly unwind it, reading right to left. So in three-inch columns, basically. So the writing would be in three-inch columns, and you'd read that one and wind it on, wind it on. Now, the papyrus was smooth on one side and rough on the other. And so usually you just write on the smooth side. But here we have a scroll which is written on both sides and it's sealed with seven seals. And this is a little confusing until you start studying Jewish history and other examples of this type of scroll in the Bible. This scroll represents, or is the same as, a title deed to a piece of property. It's wrapped around with the string and the, and the knots are sealed with the wax. So initially, 
A title deed would be written on one side, the smooth side only, and sealed with a single seal. And you find that in Jeremiah 32, 6-29. But if the owner becomes unable to meet his financial obligations, he would have to relinquish or give up his title deed and his debts would be written on the back of the title deed. So that's why it's written on both sides. And the debts and everything would be written and then it would be sealed with seven seals, so seven strings going around tied up with seven knots and those seven knots with seven bits of wax. And if at any time during the following seven years he could pay off his debts, then the seals would be broken and the title deed would be returned. Now, did you know that in the nation of Israel, land that was initially allocated to tribal states and their individual families could not be permanently given away or sold. It couldn't be permanently taken away from that family or from that tribe. It had to stay there. So what would happen is they might fall on hard times, have to sell their land, but the buyer could never claim permanent title to the land. They couldn't keep it. They couldn't say, this is mine and you can't have it back. They always had to leave it open for the original family to buy it back if they were able to. Even if it was generations and generations later, the purchaser had to allow the descendants of the original family to buy it back at any time. So you get the picture here? The title deed to the earth, Jesus can take it back at any time. He's the original owner. Okay? The book of Ruth is a great example of this. It's the duty of the kinsman redeemer to redeem the property. And I encourage you to listen to the message of the book of Ruth where this is played out in a practical sense where Boaz is a picture of the kinsman redeemer and he redeems not only the property but he also marries Ruth. And it's a beautiful picture of what's happening in Revelation chapter 5. So all of this explains what is in the hand of the one who sits on the throne, that is, the Father. It's the title deed to planet Earth. I'll summarize this and I'll explain it in a little while. So the title deed to this planet was originally given to Adam in the Garden of Eden when God told him to subdue the Earth, Genesis 1.28. But Adam forfeited his right to ownership when he ate of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So you might say, hang on, wasn't it Eve that sinned? Actually, no. Yes, but no. Eve was deceived, it says in the scriptures. But Adam's decision to sin was an overt, calculated act of rebellion, which is why the Bible speaks of Adam's sin as that which transferred to Satan, the title deed of our planet, and it's Romans 5.14. And that explains why Paul called Satan the god of this world, 2 Corinthians 4 verse 4, and why Jesus referred to Satan as the prince of this world, John 12.31. Therefore, people might say, well, if God is so good, why are there wars, cancer, floods, AIDS, depression, rape and injustice? Why are all these things around? You know, and they're blaming God. But they're not blaming the right person. You've got to point your finger at Adam. The planet that God gave man, Adam, was absolutely perfect. Man is to blame for turning the planet over to Satan. And Adam and everyone else who has sinned is the reason 
that John's audience, the people who was writing to, they were watching their brothers and sisters be imprisoned or fed to the lions, crucified or dipped in hot wax. They were suffering. So this book is not just written to do with prophecy. This book is there to show people why are we going through all this suffering. It's because Satan is the prince of this world. He has ownership of the title deed until Jesus came and took it off him when he died on the cross. But Jesus has not come back to claim his purchased possession. So I'm just going to now go back into a bit more detail. How did the title deed of the earth become transferred to Satan? So let's have a closer look. So firstly, Adam was given sovereign control of the earth for mankind. Adam was given the title deed to the earth, so to speak. And we see that in Genesis 1.28. Then God blessed them and said, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and govern it. That means have dominion over it. Reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, and all the animals that scurry along the ground. But, you know what Adam did, don't you? Adam decided to go his own way, to reject relationship with God. And in doing so, he was actually deciding to follow Satan. He forfeited the title deed of the earth to Satan. This is what is behind the drama of human history. This is what causes all the pain and suffering and disease, the curse that's on this planet. Now, you might say, I don't really agree that Satan owns everything or did own everything before the cross. But let's look at some scriptures. Matthew 4, 8 to 10. Next, the devil. This is Jesus being tempted for 40 days in the wilderness when he's led there by the Spirit. Matthew 4, 8 to 10. Next, the devil took him, Jesus, to the peak of a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. I will give it all to you, he said. Satan's telling Jesus. If you will kneel down and worship me. Get out of here, Satan, Jesus told him. For the scriptures say you must worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Satan can't make that offer if he doesn't have ownership of it, can he? So Jesus doesn't rebuke or correct Satan's claim in the world. He didn't say, actually, Satan, it's mine. What are you talking about? You can't give it to me if it's already mine. No, Satan did have the title deed to the earth. And another verse which helps us to understand Satan having ownership is Matthew 13, 44. And that says, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and hid, and for joy over it he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. So think of it this way. The world, the earth, is the field, and we are the treasure that's in the field. Now, to get the treasure, he's got to buy the field. So to get the people, that's us, he's got to purchase back the earth. So Jesus pays the ultimate price to redeem the field, the world, and in doing so, he also redeems us. Now, you go back to the book of Ruth. When Boaz redeemed the land, the property of Elimelech, then he also got Ruth as well. He married Ruth, and she became his wife. The whole kinsman redeemer 
scenario there. All right, let's go on to verse 2. Then I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and loose its seals? So, who is worthy to open the scroll? That's a big question, isn't it? So what is in this scroll? The scroll contains the judgments and the things that God is going to do to officially reclaim the earth for himself again. He's paid the payment for it. That was his blood on the cross. He's legally purchased the title deed back. I find it interesting that God is bound by his own rules. He's all-powerful, yet he has to abide by his own legal system. It would take a perfect man to die in the place of sinful man in order for sinful man to be redeemed. And so that's what God did. Jesus had to pay the penalty in order to legally, in his own court, purchase it back from Satan. So God even honours his ethics with someone like Satan. So it's a good example for us too. Pay your taxes. Don't cheat your taxes and stuff like that. So, what was required to purchase back the earth and everything and everyone on it from Satan? Well, firstly, the substitutionary sacrifice had to be a man. couldn't be an angel, and it couldn't be an animal. It had to be a man, a human being. Secondly, the sacrifice had to be a perfect man, someone who had never sinned. And Jesus is the only one who fulfills both of these requirements. He's both fully human and perfect. And he's also, of course, fully God. So Jesus, who was fully God, came down to earth. He is the Son of Man. He became a true man, fully man and fully God. He lived a flawless life and then voluntarily went to the cross to pay for the sins of the world. That writing on the back of the scroll, the debt that needed to be paid, that's what he was doing. And in Colossians it says, the handwriting of ordinances that was against us was nailed to the cross. So when he died on the cross, he purchased back Satan's right to hold the title deed. Now it's in the hand of the Father, but it's still not opened. Jesus has not come back to claim his purchased possession. Does that make sense? Why hasn't he done that? Why has Jesus taken so long to come back? Well, just to show you that he owns it, but he hasn't come back for it. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 8, and chapter 10, verses 12 and 13. It says, But now we do not yet see all things put under him. And in chapter 10, verse 12, But our high priest offered himself to God as a single sacrifice for sins, good for all time. Then he sat down in the place of honor at God's right hand. There he waits until his enemies are humbled and made a footstool under his feet. And that's where we are right now. Jesus is waiting in heaven until his enemies are humbled and made a footstool under his feet. So what we see happening in chapter 5 is future. It's Jesus taking the scroll, and he's about to come back. He's about to physically come back and claim the earth. And as he undoes the seven seals that are holding the scroll closed, you get all these judgments coming down onto the world. So a question that I had was, why do you think that Jesus has waited so long to claim what is rightfully his? It's been almost 2,000 years since Jesus died on the cross. 
Does anyone have a reason why Jesus would wait so long? The reason he didn't take out what he purchased before or earlier was that he wanted to give man time to repent. God is merciful and gracious. God has had to put up with a lot of sin, a lot of flack from people, sinful humans, in order to give a chance to those that he knew would repent and believe in him. And many people ask, why doesn't God just stop all this war and this evil and this pain and suffering? Why does he let it happen? Well, God made a sovereign choice to give man freedom of choice. And he doesn't change his sovereign decisions. So in order to give the human race the maximum opportunity to have the choice to receive the pardon, the forgiveness of sins that he sent his son to die to give them, then he has to put up with all the evil, all the bad decisions that we make. God could stop it. He could. He could just destroy the world right now and judge it, which he will do in the future. But then we wouldn't have a chance to believe in him. We wouldn't have a chance to repent and put our trust in him and ask him to forgive us of our sins. How do I know this is true? 2 Peter 3.9 The Lord isn't really being slow about his promise, as some people think. No, he is being patient for your sake. He does not want anyone to be destroyed, but wants everyone to repent. So when people ask you, why isn't God doing something about the mess this world is in? You can answer, well, he is doing something. He's winning people out of darkness into light and building them for his kingdom. Listen to what Jesus says to Paul. And I will rescue you both from your own people and the Gentiles. Yes, I am sending you to the Gentiles to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. Then they will receive forgiveness for their sins and be given a place among God's people who are set apart by faith in me. And another couple of verses in Ephesians 5.8 and 1 Peter 2.9. For once you were full of darkness, but now you have light from the Lord. So live as people of light. And 1 Peter 2.9. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvellous light. So, let's go back to Revelation chapter 5 and read verses 2 and 3. Then I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals? And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or look at it. So who is worthy, as I was talking about before, who is able to pay off the debt? Remember what's written on the back of the scroll on the rough side? That was the debt that needed to be paid in order to purchase or to reclaim the property. So why was no one else, apart from Jesus, worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals? Well, there's a couple of verses in Hebrews that give us the answer. It's Hebrews 2, 14-18. Because God's children are human beings, made of flesh and blood, the Son also became flesh and blood. For only as a human being could he die. And only by dying 
could he break the power of the devil who had the power of death. Only in this way could he set free all who have lived their lives as slaves to the fear of dying. I'll read that again. Because God's children are human beings made of flesh and blood, the Son also became flesh and blood, a human. For only as a human being could he die, and only by dying could he break the power of the devil who had the power of death. Only in this way could he set free all who have lived their lives as slaves to the fear of dying. So what's it saying? The scriptures here is telling us that Jesus had to become human so he could die and break the power of the devil. But why couldn't any other human die in our place? Why couldn't I die for you? Well, Hebrews 7, 26 and 27, it says, He is the kind of high priest we need. This is comparing Jesus as a high priest to the high priest of the tribe of Levi. He is the kind of high priest we need because he is holy and blameless, unstained by sin. That's the kind of high priest we need because a high priest offers a sacrifice. We need a perfect high priest. He has been set apart from sinners and has been given the highest place of honor in heaven. Unlike those other high priests from the tribe of Levi, he does not need to offer sacrifices every day. They did this for their own sins first, and then for the sins of the people. But Jesus did this once for all when he offered himself as a sacrifice for the people's sins. So the reason that Jesus' sacrifice was accepted by God the Father as payment for our sins is that Jesus was and is perfect. He is holy and blameless, unstained by sin. So only an innocent person could die in the place of the guilty. Now why isn't it possible for any other human to be perfect? Well, because Adam sinned, all sinned, meaning that we inherited his sin nature. So Romans 5.12 when Adam sinned, sin entered the world. As I said before, it's not talking about Eve. It looks at what Adam did. He was our federal head. Okay. When Adam sinned, sin entered the world. Adam's sin brought death. So death spread to everyone. For everyone sinned. And the scriptures say explicitly that we're all born in sin. Psalm 51 verse 5. For I was born a sinner. Yes, from the moment my mother conceived me, not from when I was born, but when I was conceived, I had this sin nature in me already. So the sin nature is inherited from the man, originally from Adam. And that's Romans 5, 12 to 19. So to summarize those verses in Romans 5, 12 to 19, because of Adam, all die, and because of Jesus, all have the opportunity to live. Adam is our federal head, the one who represented the entire human race. But he failed. And because he failed, we all failed. The Olympics is an example. If you're representing Australia, you're the only one running in that race. And if you lose, Australia loses. If you win, Australia wins. So Adam represented us. He failed. He made the wrong choice. But Jesus, the second Adam, 
our second federal head, was born of a virgin. He had no sinful human father. Rather, Mary conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit. This meant that Jesus was born without a sin nature, and that's why he was perfect. So, Revelation 5.4 So I wept much, because no one was found worthy to open and read the scroll, or to look at it. Now, the Greek word translated wept much actually means sobbed convulsively. John is overcome with grief when he realizes the earth would remain in Satan's grasp forever if no one opened the scroll. Because if you can't open the scroll, you can't reclaim the earth. God can't reclaim the earth. You see the problem here? If you can't open the scroll, you can't break those seals. That means the debt isn't paid. It means the earth stays in Satan's grasp forever. So once again, this is a beautiful, breathtaking thing. The Apostle John is representing all believers will all be experiencing, seeing, and hearing exactly what he is here. And just going back a little bit, for example, when Jesus said, come up here, and all the believers were instantly caught up to heaven. It's a picture of what every believer will go through when the rapture happens and all the saints will be transformed and caught up to heaven at God's command. And so here we have John's tears representing all the tears of mankind due to the tremendous suffering that mankind has brought upon himself, both in this world and in the next for eternity. So just think, put Jesus out of your mind for a second, if you can do that, all right? Just think for a second of how desperate and depressed we would be if there were no saviour, no one to redeem us. The only thing that we have to look forward to is death and then eternal punishment waiting for us. Would you be crying? Would you be wailing, sobbing convulsively? I think I would be too. How desperately we need to be saved. How desperately we should want to be saved. John is basically thinking or saying, please, someone save us from our current misery and slavery to the sin and the eternal misery and damnation waiting for us. And I'm thinking it's like this. It would be like being on a sinking ship in the middle of the ocean with the sharks circling around and no rescue in sight. Your boat's getting lower and lower in the water and you're hopeless, despondent, desperate not to be shark food. And you're hoping against hope that someone will come and rescue you, but no one is coming. It's only minutes before the ship that you are standing on will slip under the water. You start to weep. You know that it's the end. There's no hope, no saviour. But wait, a helicopter comes over the horizon, flying low and fast. It picks you up just as the ship goes under with the sharks snapping at your heels. So I imagine this is how John is feeling as he sees who was worthy to open the scroll. I can't. Angels can't. No one else can. Who's going to do it? Well, we get the answer here. Revelation 5, 5 to 7. But one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. Behold, the line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. And I looked, and behold, in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as though it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. 
Then he came and took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. So what is John seeing? I really don't know. These are symbols. These are like, he's not literally a lion. He's not literally a lamb. He's in his glorified body. But these are metaphors to help us understand who Jesus is. The description given to John was that of a lion, but what he observes, what he sees, and what he understands is a lamb. So do not weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed or overcome. So why is Jesus described both as a lion and a lamb? Well, when Jesus came the first time, he came as a lamb the suffering servant who would die for the sins of the world. When he comes the second time, he's coming as a lion, the conquering king. So what's the Old Testament reference to this? Remember, all these signs and symbols go back to other parts of the Bible. And if you're going to study Revelation, the best tool to have is a concordance. You can look up these things and go, ah, that's where you find this in the other part of the Bible. So Genesis 49 is where it talks about this, the line of the tribe of Judah. It also comes from Isaiah 31 verse 4 and Hosea 11 verse 10. And the title, the root of David, comes from Isaiah 11.10 and is repeated in Revelation 22.16. So just have a look at what the root of David means first. So I'll put up Isaiah 11 verse 10, it says, And in that day there shall be a root of Jesse, who shall stand as a banner to the people. For the Gentiles shall seek him, and his resting place shall be glorious. So, root of Jesse. Jesse is David's father. So, this is the offspring of David. Jesus will come through the line of David. He's a descendant of David. And the Gentiles will seek him, and his resting place shall be glorious. So root just means offspring. Jesus will be a descendant of the offspring of Jesse, and that is King David. So let's come back to that term, the line of the tribe of Judah. And let's jump into Genesis chapter 49, just a little bit. And Genesis 49 is a prophecy where Israel, or Jacob, depending on if he's walking with God at the time or not, or being his own, he'll catch yourself. He's giving a prophecy concerning his sons. He's on his deathbed and he's giving this prophecy concerning his sons. So he goes through each son, which represents each tribe, 12 sons, 12 tribes. So I'll just read Genesis 49 verse 1 and then verses 9 and 10. And Jacob called his sons and said, Gather together that I may tell you what shall befall you in the last days. This is talking about the end times. So in verses 8 through 12, Jacob, also called Israel, prophesies concerning Judah. I'm just going to read verses 9 and 10. Judah is a lion's whelp, or the son of a lion. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He bows down, he lies down as a lion. And as a lion, who shall rouse him? You guys go up to lions and... <laughs> no. 
The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, until Shiloh, the one to whom it belongs, or the one whose right it is, comes. And to him shall be the obedience of the people. So what does this have to do with the Messiah? Well, it all has to do with the word Shiloh. It's an amazing word. It's only used once in the scriptures. And it means the one to whom it belongs, or the one whose right it is. So this verse is basically saying, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, until Shiloh, the one to whom it belongs, the one whose right it is, comes. So Jesus is the one to whom it belongs. Jesus is the one whose right it is. So right here is a prediction that the Messiah Jesus would come from, the tribe of Judah. The tribe from where all the kings came except Saul, and he was different because he was given as a punishment because the people asked for a king that was rebelling against God. So Jesus is a lion, the son of a lion. This is one of his characteristics, and that's why we have this in Revelation chapter 5, verse 5, the lion of the tribe of Judah. So coming back to Shiloh, the one to whom it belongs or whose right it is, Revelation 5, 5 points us back to Genesis 49, 10, 9 and 10, where the name of the Messiah is, in effect, saying, Jesus is the one to whom the earth belongs, or Jesus is the one who has the right to open the scroll. Does that make sense? Shiloh, the Messiah. He's the one to whom the earth belongs. Jesus is the one who has a right to open the scroll. So, Revelation 5.5, who is worthy? Well, Jesus is worthy. He's the only one. He is the one to whom the earth belongs, the one whose right it is to open and judge and redeem. So God has planned this the whole time right from back then. Now, just as an aside, these verses in Genesis also contain an interesting prophecy concerning the first coming of Jesus. And it's really not unusual for the first coming prophecies and the second coming prophecies to be all mixed up together. So in the same verse or in the same paragraph, you'll have prophecies concerning Jesus for his first coming and also for the second coming. It's really only in hindsight as we look back and we see all the prophecies concerning the first coming already fulfilled and we go, oh, that's easy, that's fulfilled, that's first coming. That one's not fulfilled, that's second coming. This is why the Jews, including the disciples, were so confused at the time. They're saying, what? You're going to die? I thought you were going to set up your kingdom on earth. Maybe they tried to make him physically, by force, make him king. And isn't the Messiah the conquering king? They were so confused. So, in Genesis 49, 9-10, the meaning of the name Shiloh concerns the second coming. He has the right to take possession, the right to rule. But the reference to the scepter shall not depart until Shiloh comes has to do with the first coming of Jesus, our Messiah. Why? Well, it all has to do with the scepter. The scepter represents the right to rule. is a symbol of authority. If you go back to the book of Esther, Esther 
wanted to go before the king to plead for her people. And if the king didn't hold out his scepter, his like staff, then she would die. So the scepter is the symbol of authority. And even for the Jews, even though they were subject to foreign powers, first the Babylonians and the Medes and Persians and the Greeks and then finally the Romans, they were always given this limited right to self-government. They always had some ability to self-govern. What this means is that if someone broke their laws, especially their religious or ceremonial laws, they had the authority to put that person to death. They had the authority to enact capital punishment. They had the right of capital punishment. So in effect, they still had this scepter of authority over their own people in regards to their own laws and court system. Now what verse 10 predicts is that Israel would lose this authority when the Messiah came. It says there, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the people. So guess what? They did lose that authority when Jesus came. In AD 7, when Jesus was just a young boy, under Herod and the Romans, the Jews' right to capital punishment, the small but remaining element of their self-governance, was taken away. The Romans said, you can't do that anymore. We're taking away your authority to enact capital punishment. At the time, the rabbis were pulling their hair out. They're going, this is a disaster of unfulfilled scripture, unfulfilled prophecy. Seemingly, the last vestige of the scepter or authority had passed from Judah, and they did not see the Messiah. Reportedly, the rabbis walked the streets of Jerusalem and said, Woe unto us, for the scepter has been taken away from Judah, and Shiloh has not come. That's what they thought. But God's word had not been broken. God's promises had not been broken. Jesus was actually alive and well as a young boy. He was coming up to the feasts and he was there. He just wasn't revealed yet. So the prophecy concerning Jesus' first coming had been fulfilled. So instead of doubting scripture, the Jewish leaders should have been looking for the Messiah. There should have been excitement. The scepter's gone. That's okay. That means the Messiah's here. Where is he? Their eyes should have been wide open knowing that the God never lets any of his words fall to the ground. That's First Samuel 3.19. And God never makes mistakes. And the last part of verse 10 there in Genesis 49, it says, And to him shall be the obedience of all of the people, meaning all people. So again, another reference to Jesus ruling over the world. So in Revelation 5.5, God makes it very clear that the one who has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals is none other than Jesus himself, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Root of David. Jesus is the one who was predicted, the one who would come. Now, why am I going to this detail about this first and second coming prophecies and stuff? Well, to show you how this is all deeply embedded throughout the entire Bible, this whole plan of salvation, everything that God said is going to happen, it's embedded in all different parts of the Bible. The Bible is a book like no other. It was written by 40 different authors over thousands of years and with different places and different backgrounds. And yet what God wrote through these 40 men reads like one book with one message. 
because the Holy Spirit inspired it all. It shows that the Bible is the divinely, verbally inspired Word of God. So it's positive proof that you know the book we're reading, the Bible, has to be of divine origin for it to all fit together so well to have books written like Genesis thousands of years ago and then the Gospel and, and Revelation written 2,000 years ago that all matches up. It's perfect. It's a miracle. So now in verse 6, John said that Jesus is the one who's going to do it, but when John looks to see who's going to take the scroll, what does he see? So Revelation 5, verse 6, the first part. And I looked, and behold, in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures and the midst of the elders stood a lamb as though it had been slain. So this description is really important. Firstly, Jesus is the lamb who was slain or killed, but he is described here as standing. So here we have a picture of the resurrection. He was dead, but now he is alive. Also, a lamb represents or signifies humility, gentleness, and sacrificial love. And I've got a quote from David Guzik, and I think it's really good. Now, here is something that is very important to remember as we continue in Revelation over the following week. So here's the quote now. The coming judgment, beginning in chapter 6, is dictated and administered by the Lamb who already offered an escape from judgment by taking the judgment upon himself. The judgment will come upon the world that hates the Lamb and all he stands for and rejects his offer of escape. So I'll read that again, the quote part. The coming judgment, beginning in chapter 6, is dictated and administrated by the Lamb who already offered an escape from judgment by taking judgment upon himself. The judgment will come upon the world that hates the Lamb and all he stands for and rejects his offer of escape. So Jesus is calling out crying out to this world through us, we are his ambassadors, come to me, be reconciled to me, or you will go into tribulation. Now, as you look in the language of this, what the Greek language communicates is that the idea is that the sacrifice of Jesus is still fresh and current before God the Father. It's not like, oh, that was a long time ago. We don't think about that much anymore. No, this is center stage. Jesus is still center stage. It's not like the scars are healing up and, oh, yeah, you can kind of tell that you know, he had a few scars, but he's getting better now. No, <laughs> it's just like it just happened. It's like it happened yesterday. So it's been like 2,000 years, and the scars... The marks on his body are still as fresh as the day he died on the cross. So I pray that we would never forget the tremendous price that Jesus paid, the horrific suffering he endured on the cross as he suffered in our place. Now what does Jesus ask us when we take communion? He says, do this in remembrance of me. And what are we remembering? His blood and his body, his sacrifice for us. The more we appreciate what it took for Jesus to save us, the more we will love, appreciate, and obey him. 
I got a quote from Hal Lindsey. So as John looks at the throne, he sees a lamb who has the marks and the scars of his death. These will be the everlasting badge of Jesus to remind us of what it costs to forgive us and bring us to heaven or into heaven. When we see Jesus, he is going to have the same terrible scars and they will always be there, even in his glorified body. And I'm glad because I never want to forget. We're only in heaven because of what Jesus has done for us. And in heaven, we're never going to forget that. Not in a negative sense, but a positive sense. It's going to remind us again and again of how much he loves us. Now, there's a story here to help us put this in perspective and to help us understand what this means for us now. This is a true story. It's about a mother who rushed into a burning room to rescue her baby, her little baby daughter. And in so doing and protecting her little baby daughter, she was badly burned and had horrible scars. And as the little girl grew up, she didn't know anything about it, about her mother's scars. And she was embarrassed about those scars that her mother had on the side of her face and her arm. Until one day, the little girl came home from school crying and telling her mother that the other kids keep making fun of your scars and they are embarrassing to me. So her mother said to her daughter, let me tell you how I got them. And she told her how she had rescued her, nearly losing her own life to get her out of that fire. From that time on, that little girl loved those scars. So as an application to finish here, sometimes we can be ashamed of Jesus. Sometimes we don't want to identify with him. Sometimes we find the cross offensive. Sometimes we want to, or I want to, avoid the persecution and the cost that comes from being a disciple of Christ. But like the little girl, the more we understand about Jesus and what he's done for us, the more bold we will be about standing up for him and being his ambassador. Like the little girl was no longer concerned or upset about what her friends were saying about her mother's scars, we too will no longer be concerned about what others are saying about us because we follow Christ. So I'm just going to finish with a scripture from Acts chapter 5, which is a good way of bringing this into perspective. So it's about the apostles, Peter and John, being arrested by the Sanhedrin, the Jewish council, and then you'll see what happens. So, convinced by him, uh, Gamaliel, they took his advice, and summoning the apostles, they flogged them and sternly forbade them to speak in or about the name of Jesus and allowed them to go. So they, Peter and John, went out from the presence of the council, the Sanhedrin, rejoicing that they were being counted worthy, dignified by the indignity, to suffer shame and be exposed to disgrace for the sake of his name. Yet in spite of the threats, they never ceased for a single day, both in the temple area and at home, to teach and proclaim the good news, the gospel of Jesus as the Christ, the Messiah.
They were rejoicing. They were counted worthy to suffer shame and being exposed to disgrace for the sake of his name. And that's this understanding of his scars, his understanding of his sacrifice for us. When we understand that, it's not a burden to suffer for Jesus. It's not a burden. It's not something we want to avoid. It's something we embrace. Does that make sense? Father, I just thank you for this beautiful picture. Lord, help us never to be ashamed of you because you've given so much for us, Lord. And yes, this, we will suffer persecution in this life. We will suffer uh, for following because we are your disciple. But Lord, just like that little girl was not ashamed of her mother's scars because she knew that without those scars she'd be dead, burned in the fire. Lord, we don't want to burn in the fire and it's because of your scars that we're safe. So help us be proud of what you've done for us. Help us to boast in that. Lord, to boast. Hey, my Saviour saved me. He died for me. He's an awesome Saviour. You need to know him too. So Lord, help us to be proud of suffering for your name's sake. You did that for me. Nothing I wouldn't be willing to do for you. So we just pray that you help us today to really just think about what the centre of our life should be, and it should be the cross. It should be your sacrifice. And then we live our life through the risen Jesus living inside of us. So thank you that you did rise again. And now you're standing as a lamb who had been slain. Help us to never forget, Lord, what you've done for us and how much you love us. In Jesus' name, amen.